Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Woo. Well, my name's Janelle, and this morning we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John. So back in 1945, when World War II just ended, a rabbi named Elitzer Silver went to Europe in search of the children who had been displaced during the war. He went to search for Jewish children, in particular, who had been hiding from the Nazis for years. And he followed the advice of the locals around him to discover where they might be hiding. Sometimes they were hidden among families and farms, sometimes in covenants, sometimes in monasteries all over Europe. One day he was told that many Jewish children were in hiding in a monastery in the south of France. So following that information, he went to the monastery only to be greeted by an unhelpful priest who said, I'm sorry, there are no Jewish children here. Discouraged, the rabbi looks at the list of children at this monastery and cannot tell by their names which ones are Jewish and which ones are not. The, ch- the children had been there since they were little, since they were toddlers. Many of them did not remember their heritage, so they themselves could not identify who they were. They were lost in the crowds. The rabbi asked the priest, Before I leave, can I see the children? The priest agreed. So the rabbi goes into a cafeteria where children are moving around and the rabbi takes a chair, he stands on it, and at the top of his lungs begins to sing the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And as he sings this prayer at the top of his lungs, among the crowd, a child stops and looks up more children begin to stop and look up. They've paused at hearing this song and something miraculous happened. They began to sing along. It was through this song that the rabbi was able to identify the lost Jewish children and he was able to take them home and to what family he could find. In today's verses, John is going to be doing something similar. He's going to be singing a familiar song that would cause the Jewish readers of that time and the Jewish audience at that time to stop and look up. This is a familiar song. Now, we might not hear that song as Westerners, as Americans reading this scripture today, because we are not as immersed in the Old Testament scripture as the Jewish readers were at that time, as the Jewish audience that he's writing to. But that's okay, because we're going to walk through it together today. We're going to learn those melodies and those words and those songs together. And the other good news is that because we live in America, we all have access to the Bible and we can learn about these scriptures during the week, not just today. The Old and New Testament scriptures that weave together to tell a story about Jesus and who he is and who we are. Last week, we learned about Jesus and his response to the interrogation from the rabbis and from the religious leaders of that time. We read and watched as Jesus turned the tables of the interrogation and showed that it was really them who were under investigation. Jesus used John the Baptist and Moses as witnesses to his testimony that he really is God and he really is powerful enough to save us. Jesus then went on to warn us about against misplaced loyalty to religion in place of a relationship with God. So let's pick up where we left off in 
John, we're going to read verses 1 through 21. I do recommend if you have a Bible or a Bible app to go ahead and open that because it'll be helpful for you to have your version when we go through other places. So let's start. Verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Okay, so we've talked about this before, the thoughtfulness and care that goes into writing these scriptures. This isn't like today where you have unlimited, you know, typing on a keyboard. There's a lot of thought that goes into this. So because these took a lot of time and money to create and to write down, every word is carefully chosen, and we learn that there's also no unnecessary details. This is not like me, you know. For one example, I tell a story, the person I'm talking to, sometimes I see their eyes glaze over, and I'm like, oh, I guess you didn't need to know the history behind my cat's middle name. It's not as important as I thought. This is the exact opposite of that. This is John. They're not trying to paint a picture like we always do with our words and like our books today. So if they're describing scenery, if they're describing the time of year, if they're describing the people who are there, it's for a reason. These four verses tell us where the, this is located. He tells us in the Sea of Galilee, and we learn from that that this is for a poor fishing village that lives there. And not only that, we learn that they are heavily taxed by Herod and Rome. They have two two oppressive forms of leadership over them. It also tells us that people are following because of the miracles, and it tells us that this was near the time of Passover. So John is telling us where Jesus is going. He tells us there's a huge crowd. He tells us even where Jesus is sitting, which is on a hillside. Why? Why does John want us to know these things? Well, he's filling in some critical context to understanding this story. The first two points let us know that the people involved in this story are very poor and very oppressed. Their work is grueling. It is not the Saturday leisurely activity that we think of for fishing. It's grueling. It's a lot of work, and all of their money, most of their money, is being taken from taxes. There is no one in charge who is going to fight for them. There's no one in charge who cares that they are poor and suffering. The rich get richer, and they are powerless in their circumstances. John also tells us that the people are following Jesus because of his miracles. He doesn't say that the crowd is following because they believe in Jesus and that he's God, and they also like the miracles. It's just the miracles. And it makes you wonder, are people following because this is like a traveling magic show? Like, oh, what's he going to do next? Or are they following because they have really very real needs and they're desperate for a miracle, a miracle to save them. The last note is possibly the most important detail to the story, and that is that this is near the time of Passover. And to summarize quickly, Passover is the celebration of when the Jewish people remember God's deliverance of their slavery in Egypt. It's a story found in Exodus. It's a season when the Israelites remember Moses and his story. They remember God delivering them from the Pharaoh in Egypt, the miracle of God parting the Red Sea, their time in the wilderness. All of this is fresh on their mind. So when John is saying Passover, it's to get the audience to think about this. For the Jewish people then and now, Moses was the ultimate prophet and priest. It was through Moses that God freed them from slavery. It was 
through Moses that God parted the waters, the chaotic waters of the Red Sea and brought them into new life. It was through Moses that they were fed in the wilderness manna from heaven. So when the Jewish people heard Passover being mentioned, these are the images that are coming to mind. These are the stories that are coming to mind. So while we have them on our mind, let's keep reading and see what happens. And while we're reading, let's see if there's any connections to the story of Moses that we might notice while we read. So this is verse 5 in chapter 6. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we would not have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But, I mean, what good is that with a huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterwards, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told the disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the barley loaves. So I would say that this is one of the most well-known miracles in Jesus's ministry. Again, there are no insignificant details to this story. Sorry, I was looking for that one. (laughs) I would say there's no insignificant details to this story. Even the fact that John mentions that these are barley loaves they're eating signals to us again that these are people who are poor. Because barley loaves is what poor people ate. Wheat was for the rich. You see, we live in a country and in a place where we have so little concept for understanding that. Most of us probably don't know what it's like to be hungry in that way. I'm picturing somebody right now being like, no, I'm on keto. I don't, I don't eat weed either, Janelle. I get it. Uh, no, this is so different. <laughs> this is not the same thing at all. This is actually poor. This is really something most of us know so little about. Most of us have always had a roof over our head. Most of us have always had a warm bed to sleep on. Most of us have never truly gone hungry, and if we did, it was probably self-imposed or for a short time. This is a culture where mothers listen to their children say they're hungry and they have nothing to give them. Rome has taken it. I live in a country where when my children say they're hungry, I say, go to the pantry and find a snack. You know, that closet of food we have in our house. So in these verses, we find Jesus on a hillside, and he says to Philip in verse 5, what should we feed all these people? And Philip responds, "Um, yeah, that's impossible. Can't be done. Thanks. And these lines in the gospel are humming a tune. They're humming a tune to a song the Israelites know. This is when the Israelites reading this story would probably begin to look up like they would at the rabbi. They would be making a connection to some very specific verses in the Old Testament that we might not recognize as easily. And I'll show you what I mean. Okay, in Numbers 11, I'm so excited. (laughs) In Numbers 11, verses 13, Moses is talking to God. And he's in the wilderness with 
hundreds of thousands of hungry Israelites and he says to God, where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me saying, give us meat to eat. That's why in verse six, it says Jesus was testing Philip. Are you making this connection? Do you hear me quoting this? Where are we supposed to feed all these people? And instead of making the connection, Philip's like, not now, Jesus. There's a lot of hungry people. I got to figure something out. Jesus is referencing the prayer of Moses when he asks Philip that question. And all of these people need food too, just where they are. Now Jesus is on a hillside, similar to Moses in the wilderness with thousands of hungry Israelites. God goes on to tell Moses in Numbers 11 that God will feed everyone. And Moses responds to God in Numbers 11, 21. There are 600,000 foot soldiers here with me. Like God doesn't know. Excuse me. There's 600,000 foot soldiers here with me. And yet you say, I will give them meat for a whole month. Even if we butchered all our flocks and herds, would that satisfy them? Even if we caught all the fish in the sea, would that be enough? So when people hear Philip saying, even if we worked for months, would that be enough? That's when their eyes maybe get big and go, oh, snap. I think I know what's about to happen. So we have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus be doing this pattern? Why would John be showing us this pattern? This pattern, this song of Moses being replayed, first with manna in the wilderness, then with bread and fish on the hillside, countless people being provided what they needed, convinced God certainly could not do it. Convinced that what they had couldn't possibly be enough. I think that what we learn from these verses is that Jesus is offering us something greater than miracles. And what I mean by that, and listen, I can just speak for myself here, but what I mean for that is what I find myself asking for most often from God is a miracle. There's a song that's not a Christian song, but it's literally called All I Need is a Miracle. I've been like humming that in my head this week, and I feel like that can be our tendency or anthem sometimes as Christians. Our relationship with Jesus is simply looking for that next miracle, chasing that miracle, that hope of a miracle, that possibility of a miracle. How many times have we prayed, God, if I could just get this, if I could just get that. I've mentioned this briefly before, the miraculous survival of my son. When he was born, he didn't breathe for over a minute and his survival was impossible. Oh man, I I prayed for that miracle. God, I just need this miracle. And it was the greatest miracle I could have ever been given over a minute. He breathed. And there was countless tears of joy from that moment that poured out for so long. But what do I do when I'm ready for another miracle? What if this most amazing miracle God has given me is a little clingy? (laughs) And he's crying all the time and I'm exhausted. (laughs) And God, I need a miracle vacation (laughs) from my miracle. (laughs) And you know what? God is so good. He gave me a miracle vacation. What? That was so great. I got a vacation and it was everything I hoped it would be and it was another miracle and yet still somehow not 
enough. What do we do when the miracles we get are not enough? What do we do when we've eaten the bread and we know what it feels like to be immensely full, but we're hungry again? Later on in this chapter, Jesus says that he is the bread of life and whoever comes to him will never be hungry again. Is it possible for Jesus to really be enough for us? For God to really be enough? I mean, we sing about it all the time. Jesus, you're all I need. Jesus, you're all I want. But the reality of that statement, can we be honest, is really tough. The challenge of God being enough was really tough for the Israelites when they were in the wilderness with Moses. It was really tough for the Jewish people on the hillside waiting for Jesus. It was really tough for us now. God has challenged us since the beginning to live out of contentment with what we have instead of chasing what we don't. What does our life look like when we wake up and say, Jesus, I'm choosing for you to be enough for me today? What does our life feel like when we make the choice for Jesus to be enough? Here's what I'm going to say. Contentment and the idea of contentment, it sounds really nice to me. In a world where commercialism of commercialism that we live in that says constant happiness is what we should have and if we don't then it's time we buy something to fix it. Jesus steps in and offers something that is so counterculture to consumerism. So counterculture to the world we live in and that is contentment. What if my life could be something that whatever day I woke up, I could be okay. What if nothing had to change in my life to be okay? What if no matter how the day went, I could go to bed and I could still be okay? This is more than happiness. This is a life that allows for all of the emotions, the good ones and the worst ones, working together to reinforce that I'm alive, you're alive, we are alive right now, and we're okay. This, this world is broken. I can't fix that. And these miracles, they might help us to forget that for a season, but the reality of this world will always come crashing back in. As Christians, Jesus offers us more than what we need to get through today. He offers us hope which is our lifeline to eternity. Hope that this world, this broken world, is not all there is. Hope that everything will one day be restored and we won't need to ask for miracles anymore. Hope that I can be okay starting right now. I can practice and even choose contentment. I can choose to stop chasing all of the money and houses and things that in this world that says I need to be okay. I can choose for Jesus to be enough. That being said, I don't think it's bad to ask for miracles. You heard me. I ask for them all the time. But they can't be our religion. Contentment in Jesus is way harder, but I think it's better. Okay, so let's keep reading these verses and see what we can learn. In verse 14, when the people saw Jesus do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he's the prophet we've been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. 
Okay, so this is when things go from a peaceful picnic at the park to a mob with pitchforks and torches. I'd love to see the transition here. Like one minute you're eating an all-you-can-eat buffet of bread and fish, and the next minute you're like, where'd you get that pitchfork? Oh, is that what we're doing now? Okay, (laughs) let's get him. Jesus, you're going to be our king. And while there's a part of me that would love nothing more than to judge the simple-minded people who didn't know better, the context of John paints a different story. Remember, this is a poor fishing village, and they were just fed a meal. They were just fed a meal that allowed them to get really full. How long had it been since that happened, I wonder? Or had it ever happened? It's so far from what we live in here. But clearly this miracle sparked, a, this miracle of provision sparked a hunger in them, an even greater hunger in them. And I get it because I think we have this tendency too to look at the politics like, oh, just the people I voted for were in charge, everything would be better. But these people, they're powerless to Rome and Herod. There's no voting there. And they have finally found someone powerful. And that someone powerful is on their side. And this someone powerful really seems to like them. I mean, why else would they do miracles of healing and provision of food? The, the true heartbreak of this moment is that Jesus is forced to disappear when these people take their plans and solutions into their own hands. They don't leave space for Jesus. I think what we learn from these verses is that a close relationship with Jesus requires submission to God's plan. This is a constant pattern we find in the Bible. And even them trying to force Jesus to be their king follows the pattern of the Israelites. Remember what happens when they get to the promised land? Okay, we're finally in the land we've been promised. We're, we should be happy. Wait, we will be once we get a king, a king that matches the others. This is a constant pattern. God will provide for us, but not in the way we think. Cue manna from heaven. Jesus will feed us, but not with the bread we imagine. Jesus is powerful enough to defeat our enemies, but his weapon is love and his judgment is mercy. He turns everything upside down, and it is not our job to convince Jesus that he was wrong or to force our ideas of how to fix things. We must surrender to what God says is best and learn to be okay when it doesn't match our ideas of best. And here we find another idea that's beautiful in theory and really hard to live out. Because sometimes I come up with some pretty good plans, Jesus. Sometimes I've got it all laid for laid out for him. You don't even have to do the work. I got it. It's this, 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 only to look up and he's nowhere to be found. So what if we're thinking, okay, but what if I don't know what God's solutions are? Yeah, that happens sometimes. Our challenge is to find contentment there too. Okay, what if we're thinking, what if I know God's solutions, but I don't like it? What if his solutions are incredibly painful solutions? First, I'd say I'm so sorry because I've been there. And the only reason that I can stand up here and give this message is because I know Jesus has been there too. Not just walking alongside us, but living out the painful solution of the cross. And it was through that painful solution of the cross that Jesus was able to take a symbol that was once 
a symbol of unstoppable oppression from Rome. And Jesus took the cross and turned it into hope, a symbol of hope and life. If I could go back in time to this crowd who is sitting there, who just lost Jesus, I would say, hey, what's up? No, I would say, hey, it's going to be okay. I know you can't see him, but I promise it's going to be okay. Believe it or not, Jesus' way is so much bigger and better than you could possibly imagine. In my world, the Roman government is long gone, but Jesus still reigns king. In my world, life still hurts, but we know that we do not have to go through it alone. We know that God is working on a plan to make all things right. Let's keep reading in verses 16 through 21 and see what happens after this. In verse 16, it says, That evening Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake towards Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them and the sea grew very rough. And they rode three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified, but he called out to them, Don't be afraid, I'm here. Then they were eager to let him in the boat and immediately they had arrived, they arrived at their destination. It might have been like GPS talking in my head. You've arrived at your destination. <laughs> so John tells, the, John tells us that the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water towards them and they were terrified. I just imagine being on a boat in a storm, which I don't want to do anyway. But if that was happening, you know, maybe the lightning flashes and you see a silhouette on the water. And you're like, my eyes playing tricks on me? Did you guys see that? The lightning flashes again. You're like, oh, something is there and it's moving towards us. Uh, these are experienced fishermen, and they are terrified. They are so scared of what they're seeing. But Jesus calls out to them, don't be afraid. I'm here. The literal Greek translation for this is don't be afraid. The I am is here. Not only does Jesus walking on the water signal back to when God parted the Red Sea for the Israelites to go through, or signal back to Genesis 1 with the Holy Spirit hovering over chaotic waters about to build new life it references exodus three fourteen, when moses is speaking to god through a burning bush god is telling moses i've heard the cries of the israelites i have a plan to rescue them and it's time to start and moses says to god who should i tell them sent me and this is what god replies to moses in exodus three fourteen: i am who i am say this to the people of israel i am has sent me to you. Jesus is the I am. The God from the burning bush is walking towards them on water in a storm. The I am can speak through a burning bush. The I am can part the Red Sea. The I am can free the Israelites from slavery. He can feed 5,000. He can feed 600,000. He can walk on water and he can find us in the storm. We learn from these verses that Jesus is present and powerful amidst the chaos of this world. For whatever reason, Jesus does not promise us a life without storms and chaos. He doesn't promise us never-ending happiness and good vibes only. But doesn't he know we'd all really enjoy that? Like, has anyone told him? Maybe he doesn't know. No, he knows. 
We live in a culture where constant happiness is the goal. And if something has not made us happy, well, then that's a problem, isn't it? Someone needs to change. Something needs to change. Or my personal favorite, something needs to be bought in order to fix that because our happiness is what's most important. Right? I'm sure the crowds from these verses thought that if they had the money and the freedom that we have today, they would finally be happy too. That life would be so good. But we live with that money and that freedom that they longed for. And we know those things don't satisfy us. We know those things are not enough. What if Jesus is trying to tell us that there's something better than constant happiness? What if we lived with the freedom to feel anything? We could be honest about the storms of this life, and we could be honest about the difficulties and the successes, and we could just be okay without having to chase the next thing that's going to fix us. Jesus tells the disciples they don't need to be afraid, even in the scariest storm with the scariest silhouette walking towards them. Jesus has got us. He's the I am, and we're going to be okay. We can choose to trust in a God that has proven over and over and over how much he loves us, how much he cares for us. We can choose to believe and trust in a God who hears our prayers and has already put into motion a plan to make all things right. In the chaos, Jesus is calling out like the rabbi standing on a chair singing as loudly as possible. His melody calls out to us to stop and look, to follow his voice and remember who we are. We are God's children whom he loves. So as we leave here today, let's remember that miracles are a gift and not our salvation. They're wonderful and beautiful, but they will never make us whole. Jesus wants to offer us so much more than the best miracles could ever give us. Let's remember that a close relationship with Jesus will require surrender, will require us to surrender our solutions to the problems that we face. Let's acknowledge our limited knowledge and trust in God's infinite wisdom as we navigate the troubles and the storms that we face. And let's let's remember that whatever troubles we face, wherever we find ourselves, Jesus is powerful enough to meet us and rescue us there. This world is difficult, some days more so than others, but we can trust in God's promise and plan to make all things right. Right on? All right, let's pray. God, uh, we thank you so much that you love us. I thank you for sending Jesus to help us learn more about you I thank you for the constant ways you reach down to to save us, to show us how much you care and how much you have provided for us just right now. We thank you for the blessings you've given us. We thank you for the food that we can eat, for the roofs over our head. We thank you for the countless blessings. Help us to find contentment in what we have. In Jesus' name, amen.
seems the answer's no Promises of God will find their yes In Christ who worked the Father's will below That all who run to Him would find their rest Sing it one more time. You are good. 
Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us. We give you this morning. We give you our day. We give you our lives. It's yours. Do what you want to. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, let's speak this blessing over one another. I'll be up here to pray. Shirley will be up here, probably Blake, wherever he is, well, as well. <laughs> um, so let's read this together to one another. May you see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. May the Lord hold you steady and still. In Jesus Christ, hold firm, take heart. In his love, there is hope for you. Go in peace, you children of God.